through a really nice 15-part series on Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth entitled Good News in the Midst of the Slavery of the Prevailing Culture. And uh, today we come to the third chapter. Uh, I have uh, as the passage verses 1 through 17. We won't be dealing with all of those verses individually, but I'll read these words for us since it's such a beautiful passage. This is where Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. that most of us have heard of a Rubik's Cube, maybe have even played with one in our time. I couldn't find mine uh, to show the younger ones in our midst who may not be familiar with that. But did you know that Professor Erno Rubik had not intended to launch a worldwide phenomenon where 200 million cubes would be sold within the first two years of its production? He simply intended to use this three-dimensional teaching tool to communicate an engineering concept to his architectural class at the Budapest College of Applied Arts. His teaching tool consisted of 26 wooden blocks held together by an inside pivot mechanism made of rubber bands. Each of the cube's six sides had their own distinct color and the pivot apparatus allowed each side of the cube to be moved independently, thus allowing the different colors to interchange and move from one side to another location. 
his original educational purpose in using this was to show how a prototype made of individual pieces could move independently without falling apart. As has been said, it was a brilliant teaching aid and lecture, but the lecture portion that day was completely lost because this professor demonstrated the horizontal and vertical movements of the cube in class. All of the colors became mixed up, and he couldn't seem to reassemble the colored blocks back into their original six sides. He sounds like me. That's usually what happens when I uh, read this stuff. So as the story goes, at first the class remained respectfully silent. But the longer it took, there began to be a few embarrassing giggles as we tried to get these colors to stay together. Next came a few helpful prompts followed by a room full of eager suggestions. And the more engaged the students became with Rubik's Classroom Illustration, the less concerned they were with the lecture. In fact, you have to wonder if any of those students can remember the point that the professor was trying to make in that class. We can see a similar thing taking place in this church at Corinth. Instead of keying on the gospel and its truth, these Corinthian Christians were all about, they were all about and all caught up in the personalities of their leaders. Just like Rubik's students, they were focusing on the wrong thing. In fact, in verse 4 and following, Paul writes, When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, Paul's saying a lot in those verses, but we see here the truth, among other things, that preachers come and go. You're not as tuned into that as most congregations because you've only had five installed senior pastors in your whole 125-year history. But most congregations understand this truth better. In fact, one of the members of the church I served in Atlanta would come through the line every Sunday and shake my hand like most members do, and she would always say the same thing. You're still here. As if to say she couldn't believe I was still around because they had experienced, with me included, three different pastors in about a six-year period of time. But the truth of the matter is, as Paul puts it here in verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Now, if we preachers ever have an ego problem, and there are three of us here this morning, we need only turn to this verse to see where we really stand. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. This kind of earthly leadership is not to be our focus in the life of the church The church is all about God and what He does for us in Jesus Christ. After all, this is the church 
of Jesus Christ. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not our church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It belongs to Him, and it's actually built upon Him. And that Paul makes that clear here in verse 11 when he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we have no way of knowing this, but it just might be that this group in Corinth who were all caught up about Peter being their leader, perhaps knew about Jesus' comment to Peter that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, which we can find in Matthew 16. And maybe that's why they were so in favor of Peter as opposed to anyone else. But whatever Jesus means in his words concerning Peter there in Matthew 16, he does not mean that Peter is the foundation of the church or anyone who follows after him. Paul assures them and us that the only foundation in the church is Jesus Christ. And we can see that so clearly. And the reason Paul is teaching that is because it's found in Old Testament prophecy. Think about Isaiah 28:16, for example, where we read, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And then in his first letter, Peter uses that very verse from Isaiah to provide support for his words when he writes, Come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious, and like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house. You know, we see this notion of the church being built all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. And both of these passages, the one I just mentioned from Peter, as well as our text, are talking about building, but in different ways. Because the text before us speaks of how we're to build on the foundation of Christ, and Paul alludes to the different ways of building. He talks about these various different materials. Don't get all caught up in that, other than to see that some of those materials last, and some of them don't last. And we understand that. We don't want to build something that will only last a year or two, and then it will be ruined. I was glad to see this blessing box outside full of non-perishable food items. It's built out of cedar with a copper roof nowhere in sight. If you're going to have a wood structure in the weather, in the sun, the rain, whatever else we have around here, you want something that will last. And cedar is one of those woods that will last a long time. It's just like the slate roof on this sanctuary. You know, that's the same roof that was put on before the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, that slate roof has been around here for more than 120 years, and we work on it every now and then. We do a little flashing. Every now and then one comes loose and slides down, and, and we replace it, but it's the same roof that's been here for generation after generation after generation. So 
because you wouldn't be able to afford the ministry and stand for Christ. That's another story for another time. Paul wants you and me to be aware of how we're dealing in this church that belongs to him because he wants our work to last and not only last but to be compatible with the foundation. In other words, we build with the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what Paul's doing. Paul was a well-educated man. He could talk philosophy. He could talk the Greek classics. He could talk wisdom and rhetoric. But he chooses not to because it's not about the world's wisdom, as John spoke to in his sermon last week. Rather, he's showing them how they should be building, and he's showing you and me. For example, there are a lot of churches out there today and ministries as well that profess allegiance to Jesus Christ, but if you look at them carefully and listen to them, they lack some of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. To quote a well-known Baptist preacher, Jerry Vines once said, many people in America today are building crowds, but they're not willing to pay the price to build a church. And we see that everywhere. A friend was telling me the other day about a wedding ceremony that they attended in a Christian church in this very city. And Jesus was never Especially, how can we unite a man and a woman together in holy matrimony where we're talking about love and what unconditional love is all about and not talk about the one who defines and displays for us what love really is? I remember being in a chapel service at Erskine Theological Seminary back in the early 1980s when a student was preaching their practicum. And they do that before the entire student body and the faculty, and they have an advisor as a faculty member. And you plan the worship service, you write your sermon, you do all of that, and you preach it, and you go through that worship service in front of the whole student body. And I don't remember who it was. I don't even remember what his text was, but I do know it was an Old Testament passage. And after everything was over, and he'd had the closing prayer, the uh, faculty member stood up, the professor, and said, you know, that was a very good sermon. It was well delivered. It could have been preached in any Jewish synagogue in the land, which was his way of saying, you never even mentioned the gospel of Jesus Christ, not even never forgotten that, and that's how I judge every sermon I hear. It's how Paul judges this Corinthian church and how it's being built. It's the focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So with that in mind, how are we building? What materials are you and I using? We know what lasts because God tells us in His Word. We find it in Isaiah 40. 
verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. But what endures forever? The Word of God. In his first letter, Peter quotes this very passage from Isaiah 40. And then tells us that this Word of God that endures forever is the good news. He says, it's the gospel that was preached to us. This is what will stand the test of time. Jesus Christ and Him crucified on the cross for your sins and for my sins, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. the day, he says, will disclose it. And of course, he's talking about the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns and when the final judgment takes place. This is a warning to all of us who claim the name Christian and seek to be active in God's kingdom. As one commentator put it, it is unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But at the final judgment, all such building will be shown for what it really is, something merely human with no character of Christ or the gospel in it at all. We don't have to build with the wrong materials. Our good news is we can choose to build like Paul and the apostles before us. If we build with that which is compatible with the foundation, if we use the good news of the gospel holding to Jesus and Him crucified and risen, we'll enter the final judgment, as has been said, as a glorious church. And those responsible for such building will receive their due reward, the source of godly, which in itself is an expression of grace. Now, as John taught last week, the source of godly wisdom is the Holy Spirit. And and Paul comes around to that uh, idea again, that theme of the Holy Spirit and His importance right here. Paul tells us in verse 16 that God's Spirit dwells in us. It's with His help and by His power that we build and can build a skillful way using the gospel and the principle of the gospel and how we live our lives and interact with others. Let me give you just one example of how we could do that. An example with which you may all Saturday a week ago was Noah's birthday, which is why the blessing boxes of snacks in the little library out there were dedicated on that day, one for Noah and one for Hayden. Many of you were here that day, along with Jeff and Katie. But Jeff and Katie were also busy in other ways, going around giving gifts as well. For example, one lady 
picked up a birthday cake at a bakery up the street here on Woodland Avenue. She had ordered that cake for her husband's 68th birthday. And she went to pick up the cake, and she went to pay for it, and the owner said, you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to pay for it. And I'm sure she said, what do you mean, Father? This is the note that came with it. And this is what the note said. It's our son's sixth birthday, and he's first in heaven. Enjoy a treat in his honor. Love, Rebecca. Now, this act of kindness, and there were others that day, has been all over social media and was picked up by several different newspapers. And the writer of the Charlotte Observer article about this summarized his account with these words. She intends to pay forward the joy. He's talking about this lady who picked up this birthday cake. She intends to pay forward the joy that the note brought. Meanwhile, she will cherish a handwritten note from people she does not even know. People she sees as a lie joy to others, despite the amount of pain. Now we could say what a sweet way to remember notes, and it is. But you see, we need to understand this more. It's a way to remember Jesus Christ. It's a way to remember the gospel. It's a way to gift that just comes to us out of the blue that we're not even expecting when the Holy Spirit by His power enters our hearts and changes us forevermore. God's gift of Jesus to you and me, this wonderful good news of the gospel is an unconditional gift of to build the church of Jesus Christ using the gospel, portraying the gospel, and showing people what unconditional love really is. The same love that God has shown you and me through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see